The U.S. airstrike came in the middle of the night. Later, the Pentagon tweeted, This strike was aimed at deterring future Iranian attack plans. Well, hello, everybody. My name is Justin Robert Young. This is the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast at the largesse of everybody who supports us at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Ha <laughs> ha You know I don't think that these are the kind of episodes that people tune in for in general. So I'm gonna do my best. We have our expert on Iran, Lou Schubert, coming up a little bit later. You know, usually we try to bring a little bit of a lighthearted energy to a chaotic situation, a little bit of a rock in a turbulent sea where we can suss out the facts and and maybe do it if we can with a bit of a chuckle but when you are talking about uh, the possibility of war obviously that goes out the window a little bit so this will be a little bit of a drier episode of the program hopefully you can understand that of course I am discussing as we teased at the top of the program that the death of General Soleimani at the hands of the United States at the Baghdad airport last night. Soleimani was a very influential figure within the Iranian military and government and, by all accounts, was a mastermind for Iranian influence throughout the region. In fact, let's just start there. Here is what we know. Soleimani was a very powerful military mind whose legacy will be the expansion of Iranian influence throughout the Middle East, specifically in Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Lebanon, at all. That also goes on to describe far-flung operations, some in South America, Southeast Asia. There was apparently one uh, that was going to happen involving a Mexican cartel, bombing a diplomat in Washington, D.C. that didn't go according to plan. Soleimani was nothing if not ambitious. A child during the Islamic Revolution, he fought as a very young man, apparently became a ranked officer in his 20s during the Iran-Iraq War and had risen to a point where he answered only to the supreme leader Ayatollah Khomeini. Soleimani was somebody that had to be dealt with either diplomatically or militarily by the United States for decades, and more specifically, post-9-11. Soleimani was an ally to the United States during the Afghanistan War, as they both had a shared enemy in the Taliban. But the run-up to the Iraq War, and specifically George W. Bush's Access of Evil line, which put Iran in the same sentence with Iraq and North Korea damage that working relationship, although not permanently. Soleimani is given tremendous credit for driving the war for Iranian influence, and right now there is no guarantee how it will unfold going forward, beyond the fact that Iran has promised reprisals for his death, and we will certainly see them in the coming days. I've been reading about this guy all morning, and the one thing that I can tell you for sure is that 
the person I would be most afraid of avenging the death of Soleimani would be Soleimani. He ran the Qud force. Qud is the Islamic word for Jerusalem, which it is uh, the mission for that force to bring about the retaking, the liberating, in their mind, of Jerusalem. But the force itself was a blank check autonomous CIA meets military force of the Revolutionary Guard in Iran. It was kind of an all-purpose Swiss Army knife. You have a popular uprising, it'll stamp it out. You've got some enemies that need taken care of, well, they can fund the militia. They can train the fighters. But Soleimani was just as much of a politician as he was a general. He apparently created allies all over the region. He found who the enemy of his enemy was and made them more powerful. This was certainly something that he did against the United States, specifically during and after the Iraq War, when the United States still obviously had an occupation in Iran's neighbor. Which brings us to the incident that brought this on. Katyab Hezbollah initiated protest at the embassy of the United States in Iraq's green zone in retaliation for U.S. airstrikes on that militia earlier in the week. The militia, of course, was connected to, encouraged, and funded by Soleimani, the Qud Force, and by proxy, Iran. Trump responded by calling in Marines to secure the embassy and said that Iran would pay a price, and now we know what that price was. Soleimani and two militia leaders were killed at the Baghdad airport last night after two missiles with swords on them. Yeah, I didn't know that. Read about that this morning. Were fired from a remote drone. Which brings us to the question. So, are we going to war? Well, you guys know me. I like to compare contemporary things to things that have happened in the past so we might better understand them. There are two things that I've seen that I would like to discuss. First, let's start with the less likely. Operation Desert Fox. The reason why this is getting brought up, it was a strategic bombing of Baghdad by a joint U.S.-U.K. airstrike. Happened in the late 90s, and the reason why people are bringing it up is because that also happened while the sitting president had been impeached by the House, but had yet to be tried by the Senate. I don't particularly think that this really compares to Desert Fox, because the criticism of Desert Fox was that it was simply just raining terror on a city without much... Uh, behind it, it was not so much of a game changer. It didn't really shift our policy on Iraq. That would not shift until post 9-11. Whereas the death of Soleimani is far more consequential. So the idea that this would be an empty distraction seems less likely to me. But look, you can't deny the timing, so we bring it up. Add that to the stew. 
Obviously, the more troubling comparison would be the Iraq war. And that's something where that did not come out of nowhere. Like, like America deciding to eliminate somebody that had been debated on whether or not he was worth elimination. Like, there's no doubt that the Bush administration and the Obama administration wanted Soleimani dead. They didn't do it because they were afraid of the reprisals. But the fact that it happened last night came as a shock to even those in the know because it was a move that had been debated for so long and yet had not come to fruition. The Iraq war, on the other hand, did not come out of nowhere. It was a triumph of neoconservative think tanks powered by a strong Iraqi exile community who found their moment in a post-9-11 world of shifting American foreign policy. There was a run-up and a rationale and speeches and more specifically military ramping. There was a movement of military forces to be better prepared when and if this was going to happen. When you use the term, the war drums are beating louder, what I think of is 2002 and 2003, both politically and militarily. It seems less overt at the very least in our modern times. It does not seem to me that this is a cherry on top of a Sunday that has been prepared, if that makes sense. It does feel like an extension of the tit-for-tat military operations that have happened between the United States and Israel and Yemen, Syria, and then obviously the ever-ongoing and shifting battles within Iraq. So are we going to war? Well, up till now, the Trump war doctrine has been kind of a reverse mullet. Party up front, business in the back. Unsurprisingly, Trump likes to use his favorite weapon, the media. He likes to talk tougher and louder than anyone who dares defy him. And if he does make a move, like he did in Syria and like he did here, he likes to make the biggest one first. But past that, we've seen him defer from escalation. And in the case of North Korea, we see, we saw him aggressively seek negotiation. My gut says that barring a 9-11-esque provocation, meaning that if Iran's retaliations for this are basically within the Middle East, I would bet against a larger scale escalation by the United States. But also... Honestly, what the hell do I know? I don't know anything. I I just knew this guy existed yesterday. I just kind of feel like a lot of people did. A lot of the reactions here, and I don't blame people from being hysterical because obviously world wars have been started for less. But I'm not going to pretend like I just didn't do all that reading this morning. So please do not confuse me for an expert on this. All right, now that we've, I really feel like it's important that we get a lot of the kind of facts out on the table first, right? Just the state of play of who this guy was and what he did and what it means. 
in the most general sense before we go into the political stuff. In my mind, if you were just a generic president and you were given the choice, would you want for re-election peace and a good economy or war with a good economy? I think you would always pick peace. So I'm not particularly compelled by the idea that this is a boon for Trump. In fact, considering the polling on, you know, such an action, I think that even his base would turn on him if he went to war with Iraq. Because a key part of his base that he activated that were turned off by the Bush administration is a fight against forever wars. Some of the loudest voices that support him now are anti-interventionalists. So, obviously, Donald Trump, you know, once you actually get the job, your legacy becomes complicated. And we've seen some of his hardest core defenders on immigration, like Ann Coulter, turn against him. I think that we would similarly see some of his base turn against him if this became something where American forces were being shipped off. You know, look, if you detach like 150 Marines, that's that's one thing, right? But if we're talking about regime change in Iraq, who boy, I, I, I don't know if that's anything other than an absolute disaster. I don't think that we are in the same place as we were in 2003. And even then, that was controversial and it had 9-11 still in everybody's minds. Like, in 2020? Man, I, I politically, I don't think that starting a war to get reelected would achieve the latter. In fact, it might actively erode your chances to achieve that goal. Politics! All right, folks, if you want to support this show, head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Again, TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That is where you can become a part of our $3 tier. Get a bonus episode on Monday, bonus episode on Thursday. Look, I know I spent the last few weeks talking about how there isn't any news and it's annoying that there's no news and you really wish that there's some news. Well, guess what? News is here now. <laughs> we have nothing but news from now until election day. If you've ever been on the fence about getting on to TakePoliticsSeriously.com, getting that custom RSS feed, making sure that you have direct to your podcatcher as soon as I post it, the bonus episodes on Monday and Thursday. Well, now is the time. And hopefully... You know, it's not at the cost of World War III. Also, free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Be a part of the best political newsletter in the game. It's a quick read, baby. Five stories a day. Mostly gifts, sometimes hot takes. If you're, I get this a lot. What do I read? What am I interested in? 
Why is my wife coughing? These are all the questions that I get all the time. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I can tell you that you can find out what I read on freepoliticalnewsletter.com. And my wife is coughing because we went to go visit family over the holidays and they were a bunch of sick kids. Man, do those sick kids. You, you just one of them gets sick, then they start coughing on the other one, then they get sick. And me, meanwhile, now everyone's sick. So anyway, there we go. Free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Politics! All right, one real quick non-Iran story before we get to our interview, and that is some 2020 fundraising totals that just came in. Elizabeth Warren raised $21.2 million in Q4. That is terrible. Very, 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 very bad for Elizabeth Warren. Hey, remember when I said that Elizabeth Warren had that awful debate and people were saying, "Wow, oh, you're overblowing this. Nobody really cares about this Medicare for all thing. Doesn't matter if she doesn't have a budget and she doesn't have messaging on it. Well, since then, she's totally fallen off a cliff. You're welcome. I told you. Q3, which I'll tell you guys again. Q3 should be less than Q4, no matter what. If you're running a healthy campaign, Q3 should be less than Q4. You should step up in Q4 because people just give more money in Q4. Well, Elizabeth Warren is behind her Q3 total. Q3, she raised $24.7 million. Q4, she raised $21.2 million. This is bad. That puts her behind Biden behind Mayor Pete, behind Bernie Sanders. He is the man at $34 million. But it only puts her $6 million ahead of Andrew Yang. And if you look at the growth, this is... I think Elizabeth Warren screwed up backing off of Medicare for All. And I think this is a financial marker to show that she did. One more uh, piece of financial information. Amy Klobuchar came in with $11 million. That is by far her highest total. I don't think that she had broken four in any of the previous quarters. So at the very least, there is some momentum when it comes to the dollars. Final 2020 update, uh, and that is that there looks like there will be one Iowa poll coming out before the January 10th debate qualifying deadline that from the Des Moines Register the famed Ann Seltzer Des Moines Register poll should be no surprise as that debate that people are qualifying for is co-sponsored by the Register CNN is going to be airing it all right let's get into our interview My guest this afternoon is Lou Schubert. He is a professor at City College at San Francisco, where he teaches political science, Middle East, and terrorism and counter-terrorism. We welcome him to the show. Welcome to the show, Lou. Hey, Justin. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, this was a last-minute one. Obviously, uh, (laughs) you don't know when gigantic uh, uh, region-shaking events are going to happen, and... Immediately, I was like, oh, we got to get Lou back on because he was the last uh, person that we talked to that was that was very, very focused on Iran's role in the Middle East. So let's start here. What in the broadest scopes 
does this mean? Well, this is this is a bigger deal. Like like uh, this this guy was way up there, and he was in charge of pretty much all of Iran's foreign activities. And that's all the stuff that got him labeled as a terrorist and his uh, Quds Force as a terrorist organization. It's when we when we see Iran's fingers in various countries, you know, in Lebanon, in in Syria and Yemen, um, that's him. So, I mean, it's sort of like the, the main concerns outside of their nuke force that the U.S. and, frankly, all the countries in the region have with Iran sort of settled on this guy. So, so, so this, is, yeah. this is massive. You know, something that, that uh, really stuck with me the last time that we talked was, and, and this is something that I've certainly heard uh, a few different places, is that the, the, the issue, and there's several countries you can fill in the blank with, but, like, our issue with blank isn't blank, it's Iran. And it seemed like Soleimani... Mm-hmm was a very key factor in that. Yeah, yeah. He, again, literally is was the single individual who was doing, directing Iran's actions either directly, because they certainly do have troops in several of those countries, or indirectly through one of their proxy groups. Um, those were his fingers. And what's been really interesting, I think, in the last couple months is how many protests there have been against the Iranian government. Beirut, Baghdad, other cities in Iraq. There's just been, uh, even in Iran for that matter, there's just been this huge pushback at the Iranian involvement. And when I see this, this actually brackets off about at least a six-month period where we're seeing just the people of all these countries where Iran is um, committing its various actions, and the people in those countries are sick and tired of it. And that actually includes the Iranian people who have tried again, you know, to have some kind of uh, protest movement. And, you know, one of the big things they're protesting is why are you spending all this money on Lebanon and Hezbollah instead of on us? And when they say that, that means they're criticizing Soleimani. Gotcha. So it's, this is, you know, it's a very dramatic action that the U.S. would do this. But if you're going to pick a single individual who's probably caused more trouble and more death than anybody else currently alive in the region, you've got it. It's him. All right. So so let's let's go to the the other side of this, which is uh, it's not like this is a a new face on the scene. Soleimani has been a part of uh, the Iranian military since the Iran Iraq war. He's been somebody that has uh, uh, bedeviled not only the Trump administration, but obviously the Obama administration and Bush administration previous to that. He has not been somebody that has been the target of this kind of uh, of military action before he is now why what is the argument against taking him out well the argument against taking him out is um i mean the legal argument which is going to be sliced and diced by the lawyers is going to be 
as a government official, is he therefore exempt by rules against assassinations, whereas a terror organization leader, he's sort of fair game. Um, then the question is, what is Iran going to do as a response? In certain ways, this is because the U.S. didn't respond when they took down our $150 million drone last year, because Trump basically said, I'm not going to kill 150 people in, in just retaliation for this. Yeah. Iran was like, hey, we got no response out of them. So this was certainly showing that a response could be made. But the question is, are they then going to have to sort of, you know, do their response to the response of the response? And uh, what what will this set in motion becomes sort of the the big strongest argument against having done it. So but since we have, um, that's no longer, I think, a useful counterfactual. <laughs> I think we're, we're already just going to be asking, what are they going to do now? Yeah, so that's, what I guess, where I would like to lead, which is what, where, what are the normal modes of attack for Iran? Because this is not something that would be a, a, a traditional, I think, declaration of, like, war. I don't, I don't even know that the Trump administration really has uh, the stomach, or at least they have been publicly pushing against the idea that this is a lead up to any kind of regime change war. So what does a a conflict between Iran and the United States look like if it is inflamed by Soleimani's death? Well, I mean, if you think about it, most of it is stuff that's already taking place. Iranians kidnapping Americans, holding them hostage, Iranians attacking American naval patrols in the Persian Gulf has been happening. Uh, Iranians attacking uh, oil shipping. They did a, a one, five or six of those in 2019. Um, Iran using proxies to attack American proxies, uh, which we've seen in Iraq, we've seen in Syria, we've seen in, especially in Yemen, you know, like the attacks on Saudi Arabia. I mean, given that last year they pulled off something like taking out 5% of world oil production by attacking the Saudis' main refinery, um, you know, they've already shown a willingness to do some pretty major stuff. <laughs> so the question is, do they now feel the need to exceed any of that? So a, a not just capturing a U.S. vessel, but sinking a U.S. vessel which takes us back to, you know, our naval war back in the 80s with them. Yeah. Um, are they going to shoot lots of missiles at our allies? Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, uh, Kuwait, Israel, you know, any of those. Are they going to be the ones who get the response? We don't know. Yeah, that that would seem to be the the the... The most likely thing, I guess, if I'm just going to guess, right, is that we start to see increased aggression and violence against our allies in the region, of which Saudi Arabia and Israel would probably be the top two in, in 2020, right? Yeah. Now, 
given that we've already seen things like that, with Soleimani being you know, the overseer for Hezbollah when they attacked Israel in 06, and the one in charge of uh, liaising with the Houthis and giving them those missiles they've been shooting at Riyadh um, in the last two years, the bigger question is, will they try to attack us here? I mean, it's it's an open secret that Hezbollah has sleeper cells across the U.S. Um, on act, waiting to be activated. They haven't done much. Now they tried to kill one Saudi diplomat in D.C. I think like eight years ago or something. Was that the one with with, with, the, with, they, with the with the with the Mexican cartel that went wrong? Um. Yeah. Yeah. That was that one. Yeah. That was that was and a crazy. So, one. But but it, it does show you exactly how expansive, creative, and aggressive Soleimani was with uh, mm-hmm. uh, expanding the sphere of Iranian uh, interaction. Let's say euphemistically. I I agree, and it's always good to know people who can smuggle you across the border. Yeah. Um, It's shockingly easy to do a terror attack in the U.S. It's just people don't do it because it's so awful. But uh, we do have a lot of vulnerability. That's that's probably, if they're going to ramp it up, that's one way to do it, but that will result in a very much larger retaliation by the U.S. Alternatively, they could do a cyber attack. Yeah. I mean, and that, just and that... imagine, imagine if they shut off the traffic lights in Washington, D.C. I mean, this is a city that shuts down when there's two inches of snow on the ground. They can do major non-lethal mischief very easily. I mean, their 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 engineers are as good as ours on this stuff. So, that's another possibility. Cyber could go up to shutting down utilities, but then you have a body count, yeah, which they may or may not want. And uh, yeah, that's uh, sort of the next level. And then, of course, you know, their ultimate one is uh, well, I would say something with nuclear weapons, but they've already announced they're going to the next level on those. They've pre-announced that they are going beyond the limits on that nuke deal. Yeah. And they're already saying, we will be showing you something very soon in the new year, which is now on that. And that, and that would be, yeah, that that, that would, that would be an advancement in their nuclear program, uh, which obviously was, was subject to Obama's, Iran deal from uh, a few years ago. Well, it, it, I mean, it was technically subject to it. They continued to violate it throughout and continued <laughs> their development. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, we don't know where they are because they've been hiding it. But it's, it is always, when we talk about nuclear weapons, uh, the first thing I always remember is that the U.S. took out two cities with technology from 1945. Um, this is far more easily available than it appears. It's just people don't do it again because it's horrific. Are the Iranians willing to do something with it? Yeah. That's another question. Um, and then we get to the whole question of, does that turn into that nuclear arms race in the Middle East where everybody has to have their own nukes? Yeah, which so. I mean, to a certain extent, is already something that's uh, 
that's spun up, right? You know, Israel yeah. has them. It's been, I guess, a couple decades since India and Pakistan were testing nuclear weapons. Yeah. Ugh, all right. But, uh, well, well. So, go ahead. So it's 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 a total mess. Um, I mean, what, what I notice is also, given this guy in the Quds Force of the of the you know sorry Revolutionary Guard, how big the Revolutionary Guard is in the Iranian economy. I mean, the IRGC alone is probably around thirty percent of Iran's economy. The government overall is like 70%. This is the economic sanctions are really doing a number, and it's vastly and disproportionately hitting the government and its leadership. And the Iranian people particularly resent that because the government, the way they're running the economy is, as in typical state-directed economies, corrupt and overstaffed, they're not making any money. It's sort of little signatures for people to avoid having to work. And this may be the nudge that the Iranian people take to say we're we're done with this. Uh, well, that would be a regime change scenario. And that would be an 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 internal revolution would be. I mean that 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 might be the the sunniest possible outcome of something like this if you are the american government is that you you do not have a military incursion into iraq and yet you get a regime uh, a regime change to a friendlier government that that would be our ideal solution to this uh the thing is also the the R, uh the rgc uh, about 10 years ago or so absorbed the uh sort of independent militias that were used for internal enforcement, the, the Bajlis. And um, as they did that, the IRGC becomes then the face of state oppression. You know, the way that like Savak was under the Shah, but these people are in the hundreds of thousands and everywhere. So his association again with the Revolutionary Guard Corps is potentially going to make him, it will, it will demonstrate his huge unpopularity. I'll put it that way. Because Suleimani was also the, uh, uh, the, 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 the enforcer for putting down revolutions. That was something else that I read today was that not only in Iran, but also uh, really in all the neighboring states that they have involvement in, that was kind of a specialty was if, if you're having problems with your people uh, that he was the man to call. Yeah, I mean, why do you think in Syria, Assad fired his own military and just brought in, uh, you know, Suleimani's? Um, yeah, and that's that's a big deal. But he's, I mean, technically his branch of the Revolutionary Guard Corps isn't supposed to be doing the domestic suppression in Iran. Yeah. But uh, they are well involved in it, even though it's this other branch that's supposed to do it. So that's... We look at that and where he sort of stands. I mean, the guy is is fairly or was fairly widely detested because in many ways he was sort of the face of government repression. If you were in you know Syria or Iran or the face of foreign interference with a body count for people in that country like Lebanon or Iraq. Well, uh, uh, 
let me let me end on this. Uh, thank you so much for all the information here. Uh, but I, 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 I will give you the question that I have gotten over the past uh, twelve hours, which is: uh, Are we going to war? <laughs> no. What What makes you so sure? Um, Trump has no interest in it. The Iranians don't have any interest in it. This was a single. In the grand scheme, even though he was very important, this was five guys got hit. Yeah. Um, Iran doesn't have the money for a war. All that money they got when Obama gave it back to them, they've spent already. Um, And unless their regime is that fragile that they're going to try to cook up something just to have a rally around the flag effect, which I don't rule out, um, I don't see them doing more than a couple dramatic gestures. So so you would say that the financial fragility of the regime might have factored into the 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 fact that this was the time to hit Suleimani that it would be better mm-hmm. when there is uh, uh unrest amongst the people and and money is tight and the government runs so much of the country uh to that that, that now he was more vulnerable than he would have been before. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that when we look at Iran, we, we tend to be sort of fascinated by the ideology because they certainly do have an intricate and, and uh, uh, you know, fascinating one. But in the end, the key thing to know about this regime is how mind-numbingly corrupt it is. You know, they've wrapped themselves up in religion, but it's overwhelmingly about the money. and. The people know that. Well, from I'll abroad, you- we tend to look at it and just see it as, oh, it's it's their 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 ideology of Khomeiniism or whatever. But yeah, you know, start by following the money. That's usually a pretty good, you know, advice I give. Pretty pretty good underlying uh, underlying rubric. Uh, of course, our guest today has been Lou Schubert. He is a professor of political science, the Middle East, and terrorism counterterrorism at the City College. At San Francisco, uh, thank you so much for 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 coming on on short notice. That was uh, that was awesome. Thank you for having me. Politics. And that will bring us to the end of our show today. Thank you to our Titanic ten dollar tier: DL, Lindsay, Stephen, Japan, Droid, Squids, Mixtape, Jamie, Ryan, Adam, Jonathan, D Laser, Andy, Paul, Mike, and Brad. If you want to join their ranks. Head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. If you're at the $3 or above level, you get two bonus podcasts, one on Monday, one on Thursday. You can always email me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. And if you want to get on the newsletter, free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Follow me on all social platforms at Justin R. Young on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. Until next time, friends, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying uh, politics has three names. And I saw one that was talking about politics. I saw another that was talking about politics. And I saw one on television last night that was talking about politics. But this is the only show that talks about all
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>